Welcome to Grit, Guts, and Determination, the Leadville Race Series podcast, and your authority on all things Leadville. I'm your host, Cole Clover, son of race founder, Ken Clover. We want to take you on a journey of storytelling of our now 38-year rich history. We also then want to follow that up with tricks and tips that will get you to that line come August and let our community members have a little say in that too. So sit back, enjoy, and we'll see you this summer. We'll see you at home in Leadville. My next guest and I have been amigos from some time, but odds are you know him too as a character in the book Born to Run. My next guest is none other than Barefoot Ted McDonald. Ted not only has experienced Leadville and the Tarumara, but he has taken that a step further and had Manuel Luna help him create a running sandal of his own under the brand lunasandals.com. You can find any sandal for your next adventure or terrain. Um, now, without further ado, here's Barefoot Ted McDonald. We have a saying in Leadville, you don't find Leadville. Leadville finds you. So Barefoot Ted, when did Leadville find you? Lord have mercy. That's a good question. I have to search the memory banks here and try to get the bead on it, but I'm pretty darn sure it went like this. Down 2006, I was in the Copper Canyons for what became, you know, the story that's in Born to Run. I know we're going to cover that a little bit, but certainly it was down there meeting Caballo Blanco and uh, getting uh, integrated into his tribe, so to speak, and doing the race down there that everybody read in Born to Run. Well, come 2007, uh, that was 2006. Come 2007, we hear Caballo's wanting to do the Leadville 100 again. And I thought, okay, cool. I can go check it out and be a pacer. So I was a pacer in 2007 for Caballo. I waited in Winfield for him to show up. He showed up, uh, and he was not a happy camper. He was, uh, he was pretty well spent, and there's a kick-ass video on YouTube. I think you do uh, Caballo Blanco, Leadville 2007, and I caught him doing a soliloquy about how his day was going, and it's one hell of it. So <laughs> it was seeing him and, and coming and meeting Greg, uh, you know, mayor of Leadville now, and the Lobby family, and sort of getting integrated into this kind of um, wild and wonderful and long history, even at that time, story, and I got to become, started to become part of it. And, uh, well, I've been coming back now and again ever since then. <laughs> yes, you have. And now we've, we've been fortunate, I've been fortunate enough to be your friend for a while here, but not a lot of you, not a lot of people here have. So, um, yes, you're a subject of a pretty famous running book. Why don't you tell these people what book it is and what a little bit more about your role in that? Well, you know, I'm pretty darn sure many of you have heard the book. And, it, you know, it came out in 2009, but it was based on a story from 2006. The book is called Born to Run. Um, it, uh, it covers uh, a race, but it also really, I think it captured a lot of people's attention because for the first time it told the story of running from not just a narrative of a story in the Copper Canyons, but also the history of human beings in a way that had never really been told really well. And Christopher McDougall, the author, did a supremely wonderful job in, in outlining kind of what it means to be a human and this running capacity we have. 
And indeed, I was in the process of exploring it myself, trying to see what it was going to be like. But the book has captured millions and millions of people's attention, fascination. It has um, opened up all kinds of doors for me for people who kind of fell in love with the character of Barefoot Ted in the book, which is pretty close to the reality of the character that I happen to habitate. So it's a good mix when like somebody tells the story and you know it might be a little bit over the top and this and that but i guess i'm kind of a little bit like that too <laughs> and ever since then it's like um been a tool to get a lot of other people inspired about imagining who they are what their body's capable of what are their boundaries or capacities and so it continues to reach people all over the world to this day it is now the number one selling book on the topic of running in the history of the world so that's a big he's did a good job and I'm happy to be in it. And by the way, chapter 25 starts out, Barefoot Ted was right, of course. So I, of course, <laughs> I take great pride in that, in that line. Well, yeah, that's funny. You know that one. And then my dad seems to remember how chapter 9 opens. And I think it's uh, where minors, muckers, and mean, and I can't repeat quite all the rest. That's oh, uh, so uh, being a part of the book has influenced your, your life in several ways has created tools for you to continue talking about running. Absolutely. It's the number one best-selling running book hand over fist. It's, it's amazing how well it did on that top 10 list just in general against non-running books. Um, but let's digress a little bit here and talk more about your individual running. Now I know that you were, like McDougal, and you were running with a lot of pain, and you were, I believe, venturing into triathletes, their triathlons and uh, marathon at the time. Would you tell us a little bit more about your journey there? Yeah, well, you know, so I was really trying to solve the riddle of long distance running in my own mind. I was in my getting in my later 30s, and I had. When I was 20, I had met uh, a senator's son from California at a party. It was his 40th birthday party, and he had run the L.A. Marathon on the same day. And I thought, holy crap, 40-year-olds can run marathons? How is this possible? So I put in the back of my mind, I'm going to solve this riddle for myself someday. And as I was getting close, I'd done little forays into running, but I never could get past an hour um, without feeling pretty well beat up. And it's not that I was spent energy-wise. It was just the pain was too much. So I knew I had to do some uh, homework and figure something out. Cut to the chase. I'm up in my later 30s. I want to hit this 40 mark to do the marathon. I start uh, drilling down. You know, now we have the internet. So I start drilling down and I'm researching and I'm thinking there's got to be some kind of technology that's going to help me. I'm, I'm kind of at the, t I'm bigger boned, whether I'm not a runner physique, or at least I didn't think so at the time. I found these things called Kango jumps that were um, leaf spring included boots that I thought I was going to change the world and be the first, you know, it was a new product from Switzerland. And I was like, that's what I need. I'm going to like change the world and, you know, become a living tigger and bounce all around. And I got those boots in and I put them on. And at 30 minutes later, I was in the same position. I was an hour with regular running shoes. So I was really kind of thinking, well, running's not for me, but I hadn't given up. And so I had grown up in basically barefoot culture, you know, surf and skate culture in the mm -hmm. 70s. We did everything barefoot. We didn't start wearing shoes really until your thing wheels come like 75, 76. But my first part of my life, I was trained to run, you know, I ran wild barefoot all the time. I, I It was Southern California and we were just like 
you didn't need shoes. I mean, shoes were something you put on to go to school or church. The rest of the time, no, no, necess no necessity. So somehow, I, and I'd always kind of preserved the barefooting element in my life. You know, I'd do hikes barefoot, and I, I just found it to be appealing, and I had this background. Well, when I started uh, doing the research on barefooting, I ran into an obscure site. A guy named Barefoot Ken Bob had a site called <laughs> Running Barefoot, and I looked at it, and I thought, is this really possible? And then as I looked, though, I was immediately struck by a kind of an undercurrent of a story that didn't really exist, let's say, in the 90s, early 2000s. Nobody really remembered much. Young people weren't aware. But in the past, many impressive athletes have done what they do barefooted. And mm -hmm. I just figured maybe I'll be one of those kind of characters. I mean, the thing that really hit home was 1960 Rome Olympics, the first African representing an African country, Ethiopia, a guy named Abebe Bikila, shows up to the race, didn't like his shoes, ran the friggin' marathon barefoot, set a new course record, world record, and won the gold medal. The first gold medal for an African for an African country. How many people knew about that? He went on to race again in 64. He's the first person to win two marathons, 64 Tokyo Olympics. He wore a, what we would call a very minimalist footwear now from a company at the time known Tiger Onitsuka. So long story short, I started getting intrigued by this barefooting uh, concept, but more importantly, it was the form that I needed to, that, that, was, that was the benefit. In other words, if human beings, and this is what I was starting to learn, this is the book Born to Run uh -huh. goes into more detail, but if you were doing research in, let's say, 2001, 2002, 2003, you would be able to find these bit, little tidbits. And I started realizing, okay, human beings are from this planet, probably the foot probably works on this planet, um, there are certainly times when you need to cover it, it gets too cold, too hot, the ground's too stony or whatever, but the foot itself, when you really look at it, if you, if you Leonardo da Vinci it, you see something that is considered the preeminently designed and engineered part of a human body. It's got so much complexity to it, so many little bells and whistles, so many nerve endings, blood supply, and so forth and so on. It's not meant to be a, a, a stump with a rubber ball at the end of it. It does something. And as surfers and skaters, you know, that background of mine already gave me that understanding on some level. And then, of course, I was doing, well, not of course, but I did martial arts. I did, when I lived in Japan, I did kendo. Every martial arts, gymnast, anybody that need high quality, nuanced um, control of their movements want to get down to where they can feel what's happening on the ground. Mm -hmm. And when you feel that, then you can make decisions more quickly. If you don't feel the ground, this is what Dr. Lieberman at Harvard University found out. You put shoes on people, getting, get them running on a treadmill, and, and, and analyze where their landing patterns are. People with shoes on have this wide array of different landing patterns and strike patterns and goes all over. You pull their shoes off and it starts to narrow down, narrow down and getting in closer to a sweet spot. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, that doesn't mean every Tom, Dick, and Harry can turn, you know, the people read the book Born to Run, they said, okay, now I can take off my shoes and double my <laughs> mileage. And it's like, well, folks, it's not quite like that. Remember, I just right. told you I'd been using, bare, it was part of my life, so I had already developed this functional strength. And think of it almost like a language. If you were born, let's say, in an African village, spent your first five years there, came back to the States, spent another 20 years here, and then went back to that village with a friend, in one year later, you're going to know a lot more of that language than the person that never even saw the alphabet of that or heard the first syllable of it. Absolutely. So it's like you have to sort of weigh yourself 
what you want to do and how you want to move forward. And, and that, that's what I started realizing. It just isn't everyone's, it's not going to, there's no one solution. In the end, every individual must become the expert of themselves. No paperwork to fill out, no line to get in. You can start experimenting today that it, and find what works for you and riff on it for the rest of your life. Barefooting ended up becoming the tool that allowed me to reconnect to being able to understand what it feels like to move well. And then I just started riffing on that. And then I got excited about what about, you know, once I realized barefoot was the best for me, the tool to start getting into this form, I started imagining what have other people done in the world throughout history? And, you know, when you start going down that rabbit hole, let's say what I call the natural selection of footwear in human cultures, you don't find overbuilt shoes. You don't find people trying to, like, repair their foot with, like, art supports and various. They basically look for the simplest solution that works the best, which got me down to the Copper Canyons in 2006. <laughs> I was, like, curious. These The Tarumara, the, the Raramuri people of northern Mexico are one of the last standouts of truly North American, Native American people who are close, close, close to their roots and to their past histories. And if you study Native American running and their history, I mean, Native Americans have been, and anywhere else in the world, but we have a history of Native Americans. We're able to do all kinds of what we, you know, were considered incredibly amazing um, endurance and long distance things that inspired a lot of our early, our own ancestors here in the United States. A lot of earlier pioneers uh, started adapting Native American um, trapping and hunting and and uh, tracking uh, styles and even uh, clothing styles. I just I'm following. A, I'm learning a lot about that right now. And an interesting early American named uh, J. William Lloyd who got into that. So anyway, cut to the chase. I go down to the Copper Canyons. Um, but before I go down there, I started training. I had to get up to you know I got up to my first barefoot marathon, mm -hmm. and then I started realizing you know what. Certainly barefoot for me is turning out to be the best tool, but in the end, I'm, I'm certain that there's situations where you need footwear. Uh, for example, I had my mind wanting to do the Leadville 100. Well, I'm sorry, folks, if you want to make it in the cutoff time, you're not going to do it barefoot. I mean, there's, there might be one or two crackpots out there that could do it, but it's like our ancestors didn't fiddle around with their feet. If you break your foot, if your foot's not working, you're out. So you have to treasure and take care of that. And as I was doing all my research and starting to look at and notice that their people are wearing sandals, I ran into, and this is where the book Born to Run gets into it a little bit too, I ran into a shoe called the Vibram Five Fingers. Now, mm -hmm. no one had known about it yet. It was non-existent. It was just on, just, I, I found an Italian blog talking about it. And I looked at it, here's a shoe shaped like a foot with the five finger individual toe and I thought, holy crap, here's something, if this works, this would be a great tool to tell the story about. In other words, free is crazy. Like barefoot, it, it almost uh -huh. feels, it feels uncomfortable. It's like I would get some new, like I'd do a barefoot marathon. Nobody wanted, they just, it's kind of like a freak show. You know, it's like the black swan. What is, but I started realizing if there was an object that could people buy, that would at least turn it into, you know, something people could vote with their money and then they could decide whether or not they liked it or not. Well, I took that first pair of five fingers down to the Copper Canyons in 2006, and that's the shoe I use. Now, was that the best shoe in the history of the world? Uh, Lord have mercy, no. Uh, that thing, uh, you know, back in the day, stuff was getting in all these. Uh, once I got back, I said, you need to design a shoe that keeps the shit out. 
KSO. <laughs> that became their next KSO. And then that the whole history of that shoe and Tony Post and all the things that happened. You know, I remember having my first talk with Tony Post and he didn't really know what to think of me. But when I told him <laughs> I could run a barefoot marathon and I qualified for the Boston Marathon doing it, I suddenly found myself getting a plane ticket and a trip to the Boston Marathon to run in the first marathon ever in a pair of five fingers. I set my watch to requalify for the uh, for the uh, the Boston Marathon and literally ran right exactly that time. So it kind of put that uh, shoe on the map. And you know, from 2006 when I ran that marathon until 2000, 2007, 2008, 2009, man, that thing exploded. It was like well, a mushroom, and like everybody was getting the five finger and thinking, "Yeah, I'm going to be like Barefoot Ted or whatever." And of course. It's not going to work for every Tom, Dick, and Harry, as I mentioned out there. And you can't just get you – know, there's no, like, instantaneous fix for anything. So and there you have it. It kind of uh, went through its route. And now it's it's on the back burner. People use it. It's a great shoe for gym and for training and whatnot. And I'll get into my running behavior these days. Uh-huh. But ultimately, though, what I discovered down there in the Copper Canyons, being around the people who have been, you know, the running tribe, uh-huh. was this reconnection to – sandals and sandals in their history all over this planet human beings everywhere always have found a way to solve the problem of what i call portable ground and it's very easy it might be one of our earliest inventions after all because if you're barefoot and you're roaming around and it's getting hot it's getting rocky it's getting brambly and you step in a cow patty or you step in some mud and then you step on some dry grass and you suddenly feel the difference it wouldn't didn't take long for our ancestors to come up with you know whatever rawhide any anything once your foot's hurting and you figure out a solution you'll never forget it and so for me just having that covering and kind of getting into learning how to play with sandals which is now i've been doing you know we can get into it but i've been basically riffing on sandals now for 12 13 14 15 16 17 years heck good long time and i look at it like Surfers making surfboards. Imagine like the first wooden surfboards and then simple surfboards. And it's still simple today. A surfboard's still a very simple uh-huh. platform and there's no value. The board itself can't do anything. The board, if you throw it in a wave, just doesn't do anything. But somehow that symbiotic relationship, that magic that happens when you add a skilled human on the top of that platform and then give them a big wave, well, Leadville's the big wave for me and my board is a Luna Sandal. <laughs> well, let the, I love that intro. Let's get more into that. Uh, you actually did take all this knowledge and understanding of shoes and all your education with Tony Post and the Tarumara, and you took that a step further and you made a company and a living out of it, and you're still doing so today. Uh, why don't you tell these people, your family members, more about uh, Luna Sandals? Right on. So, Luna Sandals is a company I started in a garage in Seattle, I mean officially started in a garage in Seattle, Washington in 2009. I don't know, if I would have gone to somebody in 2009 in the winter in uh, Seattle and said, hey man, I got this idea, sandal company, we're going to make running sandals and people all over the world are going to wear them and love them, I'm pretty sure there wasn't going to be hardly anybody who could uh, understand what I was talking about. But indeed, that's what happened, 2009 in a garage. I was running, uh, I, I knew, I, I just started making some, I, I'd been doing some barefoot coaching, the book Born to Run had come out, I was doing some uh, barefoot coaching, trying to do, teach anybody, every, anybody who was interested what I had learned in my own trajectory, and I had been making some sandals, but it was, 
I wasn't sure, you know, is this, I wasn't an expert. I mean, I didn't grow up in a sandal making family. I didn't really have any great skills per se when it comes to crafting anything, to be honest. But after I started making them for myself and I started realizing, you know, this is better than any, I mean, unbelievably simple rudimentary pieces of rubber with a, you know, piece of leather uh, lace was ended up being better feeling and uh, longer lasting than some of the things that I could buy outright. So you could say that Luna Sandals, when it started, um, it's it's never stopped. We, you know, not only did we create a whole new footwear space. I mean, how many people even heard of a running sandal 15 years ago? Almost <laughs> nobody. And now there's you know goodly number of you know minimalist brand. You know, by the way, when it comes to minimalism and all of this, it's like I think back to the sandals. I think of them as surfboards, and everybody has more than one board in their quiver. I mean, depends. What are you going to do? So I'm thinking more along the lines of portable ground. Sometimes we have thicker sandals because the terrain's going to require it, or you're going to be your feet a long time. You're going to need some, like, what if you could carry hard-packed sand everywhere you go? Anyway, in this garage, we started making sandals, and we started shipping sandals, and we started creating uh, new products, and um, uh, that has continued to grow until today. But it, it dovetailed into the Leadville story, in 2010. So 2008, I did my first Leadville Trail 100 on my own, and I did it without pacers, without crew, uh, without anything but drop bags, and uh, started with sandals. It was 2008. Dude, that was a wet year, hailing, snow, mud. It was crazy. It was a bad year. Bad year, <laughs> and I didn't know. So I didn't know, but I was like, oh, I'm going to get this thing done no matter what. So I had to, I was wearing sandals the first part of the, you know, my most rudimentary early sandals, first part of the race, and I was slipping on the bottom and the top. It was a nightmare. Uh -huh. I mean, it was a total nightmare. But I got back and I made it home, so I was like, okay, cool. I, I, I know I got my homework. 2009, I came back and I ran in a pair of five fingers, Vibram five fingers that Tony posted got to me. They were a new kangaroo leather one and with a trail tread on it. And I have to say, it was a pretty darn good shoe. But I was still, in the back of my mind, it's like I knew I had to cackle this big wave with some of my own homemade platforms. 2010 came, and I showed up, and uh, actually, Greg uh, Lobby, mayor of, uh, of Leadville, has uh, one of the pair that I made in 2010. I looked at it yesterday, and I'm like, I ran this and that. Um, I got this sandal. I got some uh, Vibram soling material from Italy that's, uh, that we now use on a model that we call the Leadville <laughs> model and it turned out i was able to do the race entirely for the first time ever in a very minimalist pair of uh trail worthy sandals at the time and that really put a lot of um that got a lot of people's attention like oh my gosh you can run a hundred mile trail race in, in in a simple sandal like that of course we all know and we'll get into this later i'm sure this race has had some really profoundly amazing um, uh, 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 experiences with some of those very Tarahumara coming here and running the race in 94, 95, 96, something like that. And I think that put everybody's mind like going, wow, crazy. This way, this race has been won in sandals, folks. So I don't think that's going to happen anytime <laughs> soon. Although who knows, maybe someday in the future, there'll be some new people who will come and run in some futuristic Luna sandals and, and, and win it outright. Who knows? <laughs> Well, for sure that's possible. It's been done in the past. It can repeat itself. All these front-running guys are, 
you know, the kind of guys that are running in that uh, very natural stride that That's favors right. that sandal. Uh, you never know. It could it could totally happen. But. Well, there's a dude, Matt Graham. He's a he's a really cool dude. Um, okay. He's 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 going to be doing the Pikes Peak Marathon. I guess it's on Sunday, right? Ah, uh, yes. He's like a, he's been a sandal dude all his life. He's a, he's got a Discovery Channel show called Dual Survivor. He's been a sandal wearer a lot. He's okay. in his later forties now, so he's not going to be winning outright. But he looked at his old times from like fastest known times and various trails and stuff in Colorado and whatnot. And he was like. I was doing that when I was young in sandals. So he's excited about creating, and I'm, we're working with him and others to create a, a little bit more, you know, uh, serious, ready for, you know, to, to do good in mountain races, like winning good. Yeah. You've got to be able to bomb downhills. You've yes, got to you really do. be able, and you can't do that really in minimal, serious minimalist footwear. I mean, you need some cushioning, you need some protection, you need to be able to break and know you're going to be okay. We have sandals like that. We've got a Mono Gordo. We've got an Oso. I ran the Oso with an Oso sandal in 2019 here. Last time I did the race, and it was fine, no problem. Okay. But we need even more for the guys that are going all out. You know, they're probably going to need something else. So keep your, uh, you know, all you itching to be the first to win the Leadville 100 and a pair of Luna sandals. Listen up. There's going to be something coming down the road for you. So start saving your. Well, Sweeney, what was? He had he is probably in monos mainly, huh? Yeah, there's been um, a lot of actually. There's been a you know we need to get a legitimate history, but there's been a goodly number of regular old gringos uh, running this race in sandals. Now it's it, that's not winning it. I don't think anybody's gotten close. No gringo yet, but who knows? All all you out there who are listening and are hankering to do something spectacular and famous, there you have it. Win this race in in Luna sandals. And I'll even give you a special prize. Well, you heard that here. Ted's <laughs> got one for you. Uh, now, so I also understand that the name of your company came from another character in the book. And uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about oh, yeah. that? And oh, yeah. Do you still honor that gentleman or the Taramara oh, yeah. today? Yeah, yeah. So it, th this is a great story. So. Luna sandals, I mean, Luna means moon in Spanish. I mean, pretty sure everybody understands that. But of Lu course. Luna is really named after a guy that I consider like a personal hero. And um, his name is Manuel Luna. He's a, like one year older than me. He's a, he's a Tarahumara Raramuri runner. He is one of the heroes that was able, I think it's in 95 and 96, leave the, back in that those years in the 90s in particular and leading all the way through the early 2000s the that area the copper canyons of northern mexico where these the most traditional living native americans in north america still live um they were having a severe drought and um i'm telling you those people down there if they have rain they're the wealthiest people in the world um rain means everything it's fat it's food it's it's just when you don't have rain and you're you know and you have plenty of land but you don't have rain you don't have anything and literally those people they were so removed from the major population zones and they're in mexico native americans much like in the united states but even more so are like the bottom of the bottom of the bottom of the barrel i mean they literally in, in mexico had color charts to determine where you are in the in, you know in the stratus of, uh, of civilization and it's like the darker skinned people were at the bottom for sure um and um when we went down there in 2000 so i'm on this quest to find 
living people who are still celebrating and doing life in sandals. And the Tarumara are one of those peoples. I mean, there's others, the San people of South Africa are another, and there's, there's a few others out there, but this is in my own backyard, so to speak. <laughs> and I had already been, um, not only had I heard about what the Tarumara and Leadville back in the day, but also they, in my own backyard uh, where I grew up, there was the Angeles Press 100 and yeah. they came through there and that captured everything. So everybody's imagination was captured mine in particular because of my own proclivity to barefooting and simpler stuff when i um when i was young um to notice like oh wow people can do 100 mile trail races in sandals <laughs> so manuel um was one of the few who was capable and i really think of it like this in 95 96 him and a group of other tarumara come up to leadville to do some races to basically get some attention for their tribe and to basically come back with some money and supplies to help people who are literally starving and are uh, freezing, let's say. And I, now that I know Manuel so well and have known him for so many years, just thinking about it, here's a person who spent his entire life completely separated from modern civilization, mm -hmm. as far away from it as you could get. Subsisting, farming, hunting, uh, goat herding, traversing, you know, uh, in the Copper Canyons, it's like the Grand Canyons, only vaster and deeper with like subtropical up to alpine and these people who could move through that kind of space just like any other human being anywhere else when you move on your own two feet through a terrain you build a deep intelligence of that area like if you're hunting yeah. this thing you just the you, the new human beings have this built-in capacity better than any other creature and that's gets into born to run gets into this persistent hunting capacity that we have literally able to run an animal down through it's not just keeping him going all the time, but it's also techniques, right? Yes. Good hunters are learning, but they're also learning what do other animals eat? Where's the water? Where? What's the ground feel like over yes. here? You know, there's just, by moving around, you learn a lot with the brain like ours and all of this. Mm -hmm. So Manuel left his little world there and, and came to Leadville and actually, I think he came in fifth one year and 10th another, yeah. running in sandals. He was, other, other uh, of his friends won in, I think, both years. But he was just like, this is a dude who came out of his element made a contribution to his people and was back there now. And Caballo Blanco was trying to like reconnect, um, having gringos come down and meet the Tarumara in their world and sort of pay homage to them there. Uh -huh. So we showed up there and it's Manuel Luna literally is the guy that, you know, I'm down there wanting to learn, wanting to understand, wanting to become part, wanting to really soak up this sort of like living history mm -hmm. that's part of the human experience and sandals and this kind of it's part of the human experience lost to most of us these people have it there's a day uh it's a day or two before the race that we're going to do it's going to be my one of my biggest races i've ever done in my life at the time it's going to be a 50 miler it's hot mm -hmm. as hell down there it's dusty it's it's you know it's drought conditions it's the worst time of the year to be down there and but i'm 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 desperate to you know get some kind of connection with somebody there to get a pair of sandals and start my journey with it and i'm sitting with manuel luna there's a great luis escobar has a great photo he caught it i can't believe it it's so wonderful it's on your website it's on our website it's 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 iconic now i in my broken spanish and in his broken spanish because <laughs> spanish isn't his first language. no yes and, they, yeah. and they, i remember how bad they struggled with it when they first came to do the hundred yes right so it's like but we were, and, and then we had this curmudgeon. So we're at this shop, 
cr little tienda at the bottom of the canyons, <laughs> this curmudgeon uh, sales uh, owner of the shop. In the shop, what is one of the things they're selling? Used section of tire. I mean, it's like this is how you know, used section of tire is something for sale in the shop. And I'm like, start chatting with Manuel, and I, I'm kind of saying, hey, you, you, would you be willing to make me a pair of sandals? And he's like, yes, I'll be willing to make you a pair of sandals. Says, Which one of these uh, tire treads would be good? And he goes through it. He picks this humongous tire tread, and I'm thinking, that's not really minimalism, is it? But I'm not. I'm not even caring. It's like, okay, that's going to be it. We get the biggest piece of tire tread. And he cuts out my first pair of sandals. He gets the laces in it, shows me how to tie it. He puts it on, and he's he's like tickled that anybody would, any gringo would be like legitimately trying. But I, he's already like I'm already going around barefoot and all this stuff. He's figuring I'm kind of you know I'm obviously some kind of nut. But I got that on. He was tickled to see me have it. Everybody was like, "What's going to happen?" You know. <laughs> now I didn't run the race. In the end, that thing was a, they were fifteen ounces each. It was a yeah, they were just huge. And I started real over time. I started realizing that they use their sandals are kind of like S, or can be like SUVs, and, and that's where I started riffing on the idea of portable ground. Many of their sandals are quite thick tire treads. Yeah, thicker the better in some cases because they don't just their training is an endless running. I mean, maybe these days they're good as they become. But the reg the reason these guys were so good, their everyday life is moving through. They're traveling, traveling, traveling. Their their shoes, their feet are their main vehicle. They're doing their farm work. They're hearing the animal. They're going up to meet this guy. They're run They're doing this celebration. They're doing this rain dance. They're doing this ceremony. They're on their feet, on their feet all the time, and uh, basically on these people. And so you need something, you know, when you're oh, bombing yeah. down a trail. It's nice to have a big, he got me the biggest one because that was the most expensive one and that was the best. It's some kind of antique truck tire. Okay. I'm serious. So, but anyway, I, when it came time to name this company something, even though um, most people probably weren't going to know what, who man will until situations like this, I knew mm -hmm. this was the, it's kind of like, I wasn't going to name it Barefoot Ted Sandals. Right. Or I just needed, I needed to be able to, and I know it's kind of like, so the Tarumara also have a concept called Korima, Korima. And it's like giving something without expectation of a return. Not because a return doesn't come, but because the way the universe works, you just don't know right. how it's, you, but you, by having the attitude that by doing something good, something good will happen. This is a good attitude to have people having. Yeah. There's like, you know, it's like you get to be in an expectant mood. So therefore, you're always looking for that break that will be the benefit that will help you get over the hump that you're on. Yeah. Rather than, I don't know, poor me, nothing can happen. And I, yada. No, these are people who are, they're very stoical and they, they really do have a culture of believing that good comes through doing good and being good. So my... Naming Luna Sandals after Manuel Luna was a way of paying homage to him, but also this hope that over time I would begin to become, become a person that's in a place to be able to give something back. And over time, you know, I've riffed on this idea over time. And what is it? You know, I started at one point that there was like Tom's shoes, you buy a shoe, we give you, give somebody else a shoe. Yeah. I looked into that. It doesn't turn out it's such a great model. In other words, <laughs> you kind of destroy, if you give shoes away and everything, suddenly you, the little guy that's making shoes in that village or that area doesn't have a job anymore. Right. Or whatever, anything. Like, so it's not as easy. 
good intentions aren't always enough. You can interrupt other ecosystems without the knowledge of doing so. T totally. And we do anyway. We're bumbling all the time. You know, in the end, you're trying to go with a pure heart and try, you know, ultimately, I think everything breaks in a good way, you know, if it's meant to be. But in this particular case, something really has started coming into, into formation, both as Luna actually becomes a company that's actually going to be profitable and something that's going to conceivably grow on for some time in the future. One of the things that came up actually this year is an incredible project that I'm proud to be part of. And it's somewhat tied to Manuel Luna and a project we were trying to do with called the Manuel Luna Education Fund. That's a whole other thing where we, we went through a whole process and got Manuel Luna a passport and started getting him to be able to come to the Born to Run Ultra Marathons each year where in a couple days, making sandals, we supply him with materials. He makes uh, more money in a couple days than he could make in a year back home. So it's, sure. a, it's a pretty good gig. Uh -huh. And I always love the idea of, you know, teach a man to fish concept. Yeah. And boy, I'll tell you, when Manuel Luna's making sandals, the dude comes along. You can't even, people, he's like so good at it. Like people are like, I want to tie it like this way. He shows them how to tie it. And they're like trying to change it. He goes and cuts and says, no, it's going to be right here. <laughs> and he just like really gets into it and and, and has and I want to I want to see that happening more. When uh -huh. I found out that he wanted to travel, that's when we start we hired a lawyer and did all this and that's when we found out Manuel Luna is um he's a legitimate important member of his community. And he's um if he's got rain, he's doing well. <laughs> you know, farmers are kind of like, you know, it's like it you never know. It's like the market. You never know is it going to go up or down. Uh -huh. So it's a little bit tenuous, but if all things are going well, uh, Manuel Luna probably makes many of us look like uh, peons when it comes to land ownership and success with farming. Because okay. I've never, I've never grown a thing hardly worth no. talking about. So he's got it under, he's got it doing well. But a project that came up recently, being run um, through what's called TrueMessages.org, which is a, a new nonprofit organization created in honor of, of Caballo Blanco, also known as Micah True. Um, it really has a project that's captured my attention and I want everyone to listen up a little bit. It's called the Bursurliami Project and Bursurliami means inner awakening. And this is a totally grassroots, uh, Raramuri run and Raramuri created, Tarumara created program voted by a hundred plus governors in, they have governors for each of their villages in Tarumara land. And the goal is... Um, to take advantage, about 10 years ago, the United Nations made a recommendation that if schooling is mandatory for children in any particular region or country or whatever, that if they're from an indigenous group, those uh, materials for those kids in their own language should be produced if possible, along with, you know, cultural stories or whatnot. And um, a uh, Makawi, a, 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 a Tarumara... Um, Poet, musician, shaman, educator uh, got inspired by this idea and started working on creating a curriculum to bring to some of the schools in Tadomara land to be able to um, offer to the kids some as because as they're modernizing, you know, so many of the kids move to the cities or move to places where they're not traditional anymore, mm -hmm. and they've lost contact with some of their own traditional stories mm -hmm. and their own traditional ways. And there's no, nobody's teaching them that. And, you know, they're, they're often going to school, you know, somewhere else and boarding schools and things like this. 
So this guy started this about uh, nearly 10 years ago, and it's been sort of building up over time. And it's now sort of got to the point where uh, the rubber's been meeting the road. They've uh, had some great successes in testing out their idea. They now have developed these whole s list of stories and booklets and things that are going to be um, uh, starting to be used and created and, and then eventually distributed, including some in, in English, Spanish, and Raramudi. Uh, of all these cool stories and dances and things that they have, uh, that they've been mm -hmm. sort of bringing to the schools. And I've been, I've become kind of like a spokesperson for periodically um, doing fundraising for that project, both through matching stuff with Luna and then also we had the, um, we've been we've been encouraging some of the grandmas down there to make certain kind of knickknacks and things whatnot that we can bring back to the states and do some kind of so we've got this we've got this ball starting to roll and I think ultimately um, one of the that's going to be a great contribution to the ongoing let's say mm, modern is you know the, un, the the necessary connections to the modern world but on their own terms let's mm -hmm. say are in, in, in better terms. So that's one thing I'm really working on. And it dovetails nicely into what I've been doing over these last 15 years now, since 2006. Is it 15? No. Anyway, <laughs> somebody get your calculator out. But nonetheless, one of the things that's been happening and one of the most important contributions to this down there that you can make as an individual, uh -huh. uh, rather than just contributing to some kind of organization or something, is to go down there. <laughs> I'm telling you. It's over the course of time. You know, the book makes it seem like at any moment you might get picked off by a sniper. For sure, okay? absolutely. <laughs> um, but things have changed radically because the drug cartels are no longer in charge down there in the sense that marijuana is no longer, you don't grow marijuana in the Copper Canyon anymore. What's the point? Yeah, and you just go to California. Go to California or Colorado <laughs> or anywhere else. And then poppies, which was another big part of the cartels, were being grown down there. Well, now they use wheat and they make fentanyl in Tijuana. So on some <laughs> level... This kind of ne'er do well group of two Sinaloan and um, Sonoran or Sinaloan and Chihuahua um, uh, gangs that would you you know just like any gang warfare you don't want to be in the middle of it um, yeah that's basically toned down a lot and now with over the past fifteen years watching as people have come, I've just watched an area basically go from like really depressive, mm -hmm. really economically out of the loop and um, looks like no opportunities to now there's like a thriving. It's, it's incredible. There's this late October, there's going to be a new hundred miler coming up um, in a really beautiful little town called Surakawi with one of the oldest churches down there. I'm going to go down there and do that. Who's now? Are you involved with directing that, or is well, directing? No, no. That's it's CopperCanyons.com. Michael Miller is a uh, part of it, but it's an, partly run by um, Mexican National uh, Chihuahua Organization. Oh, wow. Okay. For for and Mexican nationals are becoming a huge number of um, well, these yeah. races are like in Mexico. <laughs> trail racing has become big. The book we, Born to Run yeah. has become big, and Bing Bang Boom going down to the Copper Canyons for this new race. And then every March, first Sunday of March, is what's now known as the Caballo Blanco Ultra Marathon. And I'm, yeah. I've been down there, oh gosh, <laughs> 10, 12 times over the last 15 years. So, uh -huh. I, I mean, it's like I'm starting to know it pretty well. Okay, great, great. Well, let's switch gears a little bit because here you are back in Leadville. 
Now, this episode will probably actually air in September, but here we are the Thursday before the 100-mile run. What's going on? Are you here to run? I'm here to run. Uh, I've got my – I've been riffing on – so I use the Leadville 100 as – it's like I, I, I try to equate running trail races 100-milers with big wave riding. Now, mm-hmm. you probably don't want to ride big waves every day. There's <laughs> there's a little bit of danger. It takes a lot of effort. you got to go to some special place and so forth and so on. But I love to be able to uh, validate what it is I'm doing in my daily life and my fitness life mm-hmm. that's allowing me to periodically do what I like to do here, which is basically test my metal, find out what yeah. I'm made out of, see if what I've been doing is keeping me um, on the right track and um, getting to live a whole life in a day. I really see the Leadville 100 as a way. It's 100 years in a day and in, in the sense that you better feel damn good at 50 if you want to make it to 100. <laughs> <laughs> this is my – I've been saying this a lot, you know. That's good. And then I, I become so familiar with these trails here. It's kind of comforting to be on a course where you know where you are and you know what's going on. And so I really like this wave. I like the break. I, I like the difficulties of it. Um, uh, I know what to expect. You never know what's going to happen. I've started six times and completed four. The times that I haven't completed, you know, it's some stupid thing. I'm really excited though. This year, I'm 57 now and I've really been riffing on I've jokingly been calling it microdose running, but I'm really looking for what's the least amount that gives me the most. Uh-huh. And, and in other words, I'm and I'm really focusing on quality and yeah. efficiency. And I've been integrating, so I'm really curious what's going to happen. Um, and you're really trying to be more like the Tarumara themselves, or these other cultures of just moving, moving, and and, and paying attention, becoming so intimately aware of how you're feeling, and so aware. You know, you just get so used to if you, if, particularly if you run in the way I've been running, and with mm-hmm. this like feel and this quality and and so forth, and trying to get efficient and all the rest. There's something about, I mean, all of us, everyone in, in any of these, you know, all of us are trying to figure it out in our own way. But I'm really riffing on this more, let's say, less technical. I mean, I don't have, I don't keep track of anything. In my training, I, uh, you know, I, I, I nose breathe a lot in my training. I do a lot of, that's one of my secrets. I mean, quote unquote secrets. I tell everybody all the time, but I do a lot of training nose breathing, just nose breathing. Okay. So it's like an extending the range of where I, how much more intensity I can have in staying yeah. that range. And I've been playing with that. And um, Santa Barbara, where I live now, I mean, I do a lot of skateboarding. I do a uh-huh. lot of, uh, 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 a lot of barefoot running, but not just each day I'll like I'll go home work on the computer for a while then I'll go out and do something then I'll come home and do something. so this kind of like everyday moving a little bit all the time how does that translate into when the the metal when the, when the hammer hits the uh, the uh, the pedestal or whatever can I still pull it off yeah and I tried to do that in 2018 failed because of a fluke it's a long story <laughs> 2019 I did it so I was like okay now I'm really curious. COVID screwed up my plan to keep this ball rolling. So here I am again. <laughs> um, I'm really curious what's going to happen. But one of my little secrets here at Leadville is I'm coming from sea level. And a lot of sea level mm-hmm. folk run into problems here. 
Um, uh, yeah. But my strategy, it's this breathing, breathing techniques. And I, I, I run this whole race, nose breathing, but I go out through the, I, I don't nose breathe in and out the whole way. Yeah. But I get this thing where I'm going on a, and I'll start like, I'll start like turbocharged breathing when I'm climbing hills and stuff. Uh -huh. And I can just keep this thing going. This monkey goes all the way. <laughs> so I'm really curious how I'm going to be looking and feeling. And I actually have a pair of, I'm going to wear a pair of what we call Leadville Gordos. So it's a model called yeah. Leadville. It's a thicker one with wings and leather laces. It's never been run before in those. So I'll, let's see what happens. I'm pretty excited. Well, that's awesome. I can't wait to see it go down. Um, now, also, though, you know, how can you tell our family members how Leadville shaped your life beyond race day in some of your past Leadville events? Or and can you also add what some of your more memorable trail experiences have been here? Well, Leadville, like, you know, as as the as one of the big waves that I've you know been able to make my way through it. There's just so many memories. I mean, it's people, mm -hmm. it's experiences. I mean, just so much goodwill, so many, uh, so many experiences, so many great conversations and people. Oh yeah, the whole family aspect of Leadville is super important. I mean, I have kept in contact and know by face and name so many people who I've met either on the trails or leading up to going um, on them here. Uh, Ken has been, I. I there's something so inspiring. His story and the way he tells the story about Leadville and, and how what, there's something so fundamentally good about um, getting people to riff on this idea that sometimes it's the setbacks, the hard uh, to take setbacks that lead you to come up with a new idea, a new way forward. And that attitude, that way, um, carries over into my life. I mean, Leadville carries over into my life all the time in business, all the time. And I'll give you a great example. Last year, March 26th through May 26th, 60 days, mm -hmm. um, my wife, me, and one other employee ran the entire Luna Sandals operation, including making every sandal, running every machine, ship, shipping out everything, doing all. And, um, COVID had come and mm -hmm. basically Seattle was shut down. That's where our shop used to be. We've now moved yeah. to Wenatchee, Washington. We converted an old Apple storage building into the modern USA production facility. And we actually are also working with a third generation Japanese family owned company that the grandson's the owner now, a, friend, a, a fan of Luna Sandals, a fan of Barefoot Ted, uh, loves the book Born to Run, knows about Leadville. <laughs> His company has been helping us to sort of scale our business, particularly overseas. So we've got right. American-made stuff. We've got stuff made with a Japanese company in Vietnam. But for 60 days last year, and I was willing to go to 100, and this is where <laughs> Ken's voice came booming in, um, I had to, we had to do something hard. Uh, Liv and I lived inside the Luna factory, worked seven days a week, morning to night, and I put in my mind, there's no way I'm letting this ship go down. I thought, I said, if I can do 100 miles, I'll do 100 days. And uh, I'm telling you, all that atti attitude has so much to do with how anything happens in your life, right? Yes. And um, in this particular case, having the attitude, having the stamina, 
pacing myself. Oh, pacing is one of the things you learn. You uh-huh. can, you've got to learn how to pace yourself. If you want to go 100 miles, if you want to live 100 years, if you want to work 100 days on something as crazy as making sandals 24 hours a day almost, well, you've got to pace yourself. And I just kept that attitude about digging deep. Yes. And um, I'm telling you, these these kind of things end up, yeah, so it's more than just an athletic event. It's more than just a way of getting a belt buckle and showing that you can ride the big waves and make it all the way to the end. It's also a life lesson for you to overcome the, the obstacles you're sure to face if you decide to do embody yourself on this planet at this time, or any time for that matter. And so if you need stimulation to, uh, that, that goes beyond just an event, this is one that's going to change your life, and I'm almost certain that if you drill down and talk to anybody who's willing to apply what they learn here and take the advice that that's been given by the people who run this operation, their life's going to be better too. And I can definitely say mine is, and I have to say a big thank you to the Leadville family. Well, we love that. We love that you're a part of our Leadville family. Uh, what a great segue. Do you have any other advice that you give any of these family members to get them across that line? Well, you know, if you're not, if you're coming from sea level, you're going to want to learn how to breathe, <laughs> because you're going to have a lot less air up here, and that is, I think that is a big one for a lot of people, right? Uh, yes, it most certainly is an elephant in the room. Yeah, I, I remember two years ago. I mean, I'm, I'm on Hope Pass, and it literally is one step, stop, rest, <laughs> yeah, st- another step. And the head of uh, vice president of Spartan, some part of Spartan, one of their events, is next to me. And I'm like thinking, dude, please don't follow me. This is it. I'm like thinking, please go on. Don't use me as your model right now. I, if I could push a button and say, I'm done, I would have done it. But then somehow, so in the end, it's like become so familiar with yourself and comfortable with yourself that you're, most of your movement is your enjoy i mean my strategy i'm mm-hmm. not i'm not a person you know some people get into ultra running because they love to see how you know m- much abuse they can take and still keep yeah. going I, I i shy away from that surf surf culture and skate culture back in the day where i grew up it had nothing to do with points or winning it was shared experience uh-huh. you know everyone yeah. and it was style and it was yeah you know and it was just being out there yeah. And, and you, basically, if you make it out here, um, you become one of us. You're, you, you, yeah. you're, 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 you, you've already gone way beyond where most people are able to imagine. So already be, be there. Uh, but if you can end up finding a way to, to, to solve the riddle of how to make it from one end <laughs> of this town back to the uh, and back, in, in uh, the 30 hours, if you figure out how to do that, it's going to be your own way. I mean, you're going to learn little tricks from me, different people. My style is I want to feel good as long as possible. Back to the idea of 100 years in a day. <laughs> I want to feel good at 50 because yeah. I want to I make it to 100. And I want to be when I get to 100. I want to be saying, you know what? Okay. It's a good, it was a good time. It's a good day to die or cross the finish line. <laughs> you know, it's a good day to cross the finish line. That's what I'm going to say about that. Great. Now, uh, here's a big one. What do you think of when you hear the word Leadville? Leadville is a super beautiful location on this planet. 
that people have been milling around on for a long time trying to make something of themselves. And in this day and age, it turns out the most interesting thing that's happening has to do with people like you coming here and doing interesting things. So when I think of Leadville, I just think of all the smiling faces, the tears, the blood, the sweat. I think of uh, I think of hugs that I've had from people finishing on the finish line. I think of uh, the coffee and the food and the places and just also, by the way, watching a community too, just like in the Copper Canyons. I've seen Arike and other uh, communities growing from the goodwill that comes from others coming and visiting. Certainly, I see that in Leadville. So I see Leadville just means uh, never give up. There's always hope uh, if you if you can stay in there, and there's other people who are going to be at your side, encouraging you all the way. And it just I don't know it resonates. I mean, I literally have a product named Leadville. I I tell people about it all all the time because yeah. So yeah, Leadville's for me. Leadville's a mecca too. It's like a place I wanna I wanna try to make it a regular part of my life to just sort of sort of uh, re-magnetize myself, re-remember why it is that I love this place so much and then get to look people in the eye and say thank you and say hello and say I love you and say see you next year. Well, absolutely. Uh, We can't say how much we want you to be a part of this community and same with all of you listening. Ted, I cannot thank you enough for your time. It's always been great. I've always admired our friendship. Is there anything else you want to share before I let you go? Well, if you like bison burgers, uh, probably Leadville's a good place to find one. (laughs) That's a great statement. (laughs) Thank you very much, Ted. Well, boy, was that a fun episode. I told you it wouldn't disappoint. Uh, There you have it from one of my amigos, Barefoot Ted. And once again, if you're interested in finding out more about his products, please visit lunasandals.com. Please also don't forget to give us a subscribe wherever you're getting your podcasts. And we look forward to seeing you at home. We look forward to seeing you in Leadville.